When I hold our grandbabies, Avery and Julia, I talk to them and um, I sing to them. <laughs> I sing, uh, You Are My Sunshine. That's one of, one of the few I can sing all the way through and stay on key. It's only him I think I've memorized. <laughs> uh, but I sing, You Are My Sunshine, and I sing Amazing Grace, and I sing to them and talk to them. And um, probably have stunted their musical capabilities by doing that, but nevertheless, I've done it. And uh, within the last week, uh, Avery crawled up my lap, and I was singing to her. And she uh, looked at me, and she said, she calls me Bo, she said, Bo, don't sing. <laughs> so I said, okay. She said, Bo, talk. <laughs> now what she means by that is for me to tell her a story, either to read her one of her little books uh, or to tell her a story, to make up a story. And so I, we were up in bed together, and she was there and kind of looking at me, and I was making up this story. And uh, she was just intent on listening to it. And when I finished, she looked at me and said what she always says, if she likes the story or if she likes the book. She has reduced her request to one single word. Again. <laughs> do your children do that? Do your grandchildren do that? You tell the story. And she just looks at you and says, again, Bo, again. So I got to thinking about it, and I thought, how many times have I, have I preached this story? I've been here now, this is the 33rd Christmas we have spent together. And I've preached two, three, or four sermons at least every Christmas. And so I decided this time not to look at anything I've ever said or written, to just read the story over and over and over. And so this morning, for a few moments, I want to do what Avery said to do, to tell it again, again. And I begin by turning that marvelous passage of Scripture second chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And I'll begin with the eighth verse. And in the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good news of a great joy which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. 
And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. And it came about when the angel had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came in haste and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. And when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as it had been told them. When reading of some of the works of an outstanding Old Testament scholar by the name of Walter Brueggemann, one of the leading Old Testament scholars in the world today. He made a statement that captured my mind, simple statement, but profound because it comes from this man who has devoted his life to the study and the teaching of the Word of God. And he said, we have made a mistake, he thinks, in our emphasis in Christian education. He said, we have made a proper but an exaggerated emphasis upon competence. And I said, we certainly need competent people to keep things working that we have made. We need competent people. We need people who spend their lives devoted to the intense, tedious, meticulous study of all of the aspects of the Word of God and of divine revelation. But he said the primary emphasis of the Scripture is not upon competence, but upon meeting. 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 God has called a meeting. God has come to visit his people. As Zechariah the prophet said, and this was echoed in the Gospel of Luke when Jesus raised a dead boy from the grave, and the man exclaimed, Surely God has visited his people. God has come to call a meeting. Why? Because he wants to meet us. He wants to meet you. He wants you to meet him. Isn't it interesting as you look into the Bible to see how many competent people never met him? 
The people in the temple who knew the most about the Scripture and were able to give directions to the wise men traveling from a distant country were competent. They knew that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. But they missed the meeting. In the ministry of Jesus, notice how many competent people missed him. The rich young ruler, he had it all down. I mean, he knew the scripture and he knew the commandments and he kept all of them. He was efficient, competent. He just missed the meeting. Who's called to the meeting? Well, the scripture tells us that we're all invited to the meeting. The angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy which shall be for all the people. Nothing exclusive about this meeting. It's for everybody. Unfortunately, some well-meaning but misguided specialists in religion have come along and deleted that word all from the invitation, and they have reduced it to certain people with certain moral standards or certain habits or certain competence, moral, intellectual, or otherwise, and they have made the invitation conditional, but we need to get back to God's original invitation, which was and is to this day to all people, to anybody, to everybody to the incompetent people. The immoral people. The irreligious people. Jesus emphasized this in story after story in the seventh chapter of the Luke, in the seventh chapter of the Gospel of Luke, uh, the 14th chapter, let me move over to the 14th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Jesus says, 13th verse, but when you give a reception, that's the kind of person Jesus is. When you give a reception, when you give a party, when you give a dinner, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about the guest list for your party. He says, when you give a reception, you invite the poor and the crippled and the lame the blind. He says it again. Same chapter. Another story, another setting. 21st verse. You go out at once into the streets and the lane. He'd send his servants out to invite people to come to this party, to this banquet, all these competent people, these people that own lands, these people that had all this property, these people that good things were happening to them. They went out and they gave an invitation to them and they all began to give excuses. One said, well, I bought some property, I can't come. Another said, I bought some oxen, they can't come. Another said, well, I've gotten married, I can't come. All of these successful, competent people, all of them turned down the invitation. Jesus said, look, go out, you go back out there at once into the streets and the lanes of the city, and you bring in here the poor 
and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Master, what you commanded has been done and there still is room. And the master said to the servant, you go out into the highways and along the hedges and you compel anybody and everybody to come to the meeting. Now, I believe he means not only those that are literally poor and literally crippled and literally blind and literally lame. I believe that applies to those who may be poor in spirit. You just had to declare bankruptcy at the point of hope. Maybe you've been crippled by guilt or fear or the words of other people wounded you, hurt you, or blind. Just don't see any purpose to it all and you can't see your way into 1992. And the future looks bleak. You're lame, you just can't move like you used to, physically, mentally, or spiritually, it seems, and you just limp along. Well, the meeting is for you. It's for the outsider, for the person that doesn't feel they qualify. We had a marvelous, an incomparable time making this TV special in Hawaii. Just had so many more experiences and interviews than we could ever put in that hour-long film. In fact, we filmed seven days at about 15 different locations, and at one stretch, Steve edited for 17 hours straight. There were a lot of marvelous, exciting work done and experiences that... Uh, we just wish we'd had more time to use. I want to tell you about one thing that happened that uh, didn't fit in the themes of the film, the special that we did. But the significance of it has dawned upon me at the time, but increasingly has impressed me. One day, just out of the blue, I received a, a call in the hotel room from the United States Information Agency in Hawaii. And they said, there are some men coming some from Japan, from the Meiji Shrine. I don't know what the Meiji Shrine was. Never heard of it. Said, there's some people coming from the Meiji Shrine, and they want to meet and talk with you. Would you do it? I said, well, of course. I said, who are they? And the woman at the United States Information Agency said, well, I have their names, but we received communication from the American Embassy in Tokyo that we were to give these people very special treatment because they are extremely powerful people in Japan. They are officers of the Meiji Shrine and because of that responsibility, they have great influence with the political powers that exist in Japan. Well, I found out a little bit about the Meiji Shrine. It was built by the 
Emperor Mushihito many years ago and is the leading Shinto shrine in Japan. Shinto is the major religion in Japan. And Meiji means enlightened government. I asked the woman, how did you find out about me? She said, we don't know. We've just been told they want to meet with you. Would you meet with them? I said, certainly. I said, I'm speaking at a service on Saturday, December the 7th at noon at a Methodist church that has both a Caucasian congregation and a Japanese congregation. The Japanese service conducted by the Japanese associate pastor is at 8.30 in the morning. Uh, these are uh, Japanese Americans. And the Caucasian service is conducted at 11 o'clock. This church is hosting a citywide ecumenical service of reconciliation. And I said, told them about this service, and I said, uh, would they like to attend this service? And she said, I'm sure they would. And so she planned their itinerary. I, I tried to find out. I talked to the Japanese pastor of the church. If he told them about it, he, he, didn't, he didn't do it. I talked to the pastor of Central Union Church where I was to preach on Sunday. If he told don't have any idea. To this day, I don't know how they heard about me. They came to Japan, from Japan to Hawaii to be there specifically for the Pearl Harbor observances. And so we met for nearly an hour before that 11 noon service on December the 7th. Uh, these three men, I have their cards here. I'd read their names, but uh, I'm not that good in Japanese, and you wouldn't remember it anyway, other than one is a priest of the church, Reverend Yoshitaka Iwamoto. The other are officers. One is the chief of social relation affairs. The other is the chief of public relations. For the Meiji Shrine, we sat, the first question they asked me, what do you believe is the answer for world peace? I said, let me tell you my story, how I found peace in my own heart. Much of the experience precipitated by the events in your country, in Nagasaki. Apparently, they knew something of that experience of mine. We talked for nearly an hour. I shared with them about what Jesus Christ had done in my heart and in my life. They then stayed for the service and heard others, Japanese and Americans, tell about what Christ had done to bring peace into their hearts. And these three men began the conversation with me by saying, we were not in places of leadership or responsibility at the time, but we apologize for what happened 50 years ago today and we pray it will never happen again.
It didn't dawn upon my consciousness until just two or three days ago when I was thinking about this sermon today. That isn't it phenomenal that people still keep coming in threes from the east looking for light, enlightened government. The wise men of old were the first of many cents, millions who still look for the light. He's invited outsiders, anybody and everybody, to come meet him. Where's the meeting being held? Well, the meeting is not being held in the boardroom on the top floor of the North Caesarea National Bank. The meeting is being held in a barn. A caravansary. It really, it's a hotel parking lot, to use contemporary language. A cave back at the hotel where they park the camels and the donkeys for the night. A stable. Uh, it is, uh, it's not a black tie affair. I mean, anybody can come into a stable. There is no improper dress for this reception, for this party, for this meeting. And we have refreshments. Refreshments. Don't have pheasant under glass, but you do have a baby under swaddling clothes. And they laid him in a manger in Bethlehem. Think about that a minute. A manger, if you look it up in your dictionary, it means an open box in which food is placed for animals. A manger is a feed box. It's a feed box. Now, I'm not for changing that marvelous Christmas carol to away in a feed box. No crib for a bed. The little Lord Jesus lay down his sweet head. But it seems more than accidental, but providential to me, that Jesus, the bread of life, was born in Bethlehem, which means the house of bread, 
Beth Haslehem bread, the bread of life, was born in the house of bread, and he was laid in a feed box. And whoever eats my flesh, he said, and drinks my blood will have everlasting life. Oh, don't apply some crude literalism to that statement of Jesus that upset even some people in his day. What he is saying is, look, take me into you. By faith, ingest me. Let my love permeate you. Let my hope fill you. Let my joy refresh you. Ingest me. Digest me. Let me become part of the warp and woof of your life, of the bone and the sinew and the muscle and the blood and the brain of your existence. I've come as bread and a feed box and a manger for anybody and everybody Whoever they are, competent, incompetent, moral, immoral, religious, irreligious, wise or simple, anybody can come and is invited to the refreshment that he brings. Wonderful. Simply wonderful. Well, what was the result of it? Well, the result of it. who went says the shepherds went home rejoicing and praising God for everything that had happened said the wise men who came went home a different way because they were different people they had a different set of standards and different priorities and different values and it reflected in their walk and in their way How did they leave Christmas? They left different people. They left happy people. They left satisfied people. They left as sharing people. How do you leave Christmas? Or to flip it around, how does Christmas leave you? When it's all over, December the 26th comes and the week after Christmas, what's your spirit then? Frazzled? Depressed? Fatigued? Burned out? If that's what happened, let, let me give a, what I hope will be a practical suggestion or two that maybe will make a difference. If the way you've been observing Christmas does not have the afterglow of rejoicing and happiness and newness, maybe you need to start right now, ten days before, and have a different kind of Christmas than maybe you've been having. Maybe... If you approach it in a different way, you'll have the same result in your life that they had at that first Christmas. 
Just a, a simple cause and effect kind of application to Christmas. For example, if you, if you eat a chili dog at midnight and it starts barking at you at about 2 or 3 in the morning and you feel like you've swallowed a porcupine, There's nothing wrong with the chili dog. It's okay. It's fine. It was just the time and the place, and, and maybe it just doesn't agree with you. So alter your behavior. Change the procedure. Maybe if you do that about Christmas, you'll have a different aftermath. One thing, don't have unrealistic expectations about Christmas. There's not going to be anything perfect about it. Making a difference how hard you work, it's not going to be perfect. The manger did not make it into good housekeeping. If you don't get all the decorations exactly the way you want, it's okay. All the food doesn't have to be perfect. Get yourself kind of out of it. And make it a time for other people. best thing that a lot of us can do is just get ourselves off of our own hands and at Christmas really center on other people. Some people go into Christmas like, like, like people take a shower with a raincoat and an umbrella. I mean, it just never gets to them. Just kind of, these, just kind of buttoned down people. Who seem to live life perennially with their arms folded. Loosen up, brighten up, relax, center on other folks. The essence of Christmas is that baby. Unpredictable, fresh, new. Exciting, relax and enjoy. Tell other people that you love them. If you can give a gift, fine. If you can't, give yourself, which is better. But love and listen. And relax. And there's nothing perfect about Christmas except the one whom we worship. But there's also a contrast to Christmas. Christmas wasn't happy for everybody. Herod had all those little baby boys in Bethlehem, two years of age and under, killed. 
Christmas is not a happy time for everybody. It may not be for you. This may be the first Christmas for some of you without someone who's been very, very important in your life. This Christmas may remind you of someone who years ago went to be with the Lord and it's just not quite the same. That's normal. That happened then and it happens now. It was nobody's fault. An evil man was on the throne King Herod, who precipitated some dastardly deeds in the lives of people, hurt so many people. Events come along, circumstances come along to break hearts and sever ties. But look closely at this story and see if there's not here a recipe for renewal for you. When the tragedy started to come, Joseph, in the middle of the night, listened to God. And God uprooted them, having already been uprooted from Nazareth. He further uprooted this little family, and they went to Egypt. What does that say? That says, listen to God, even in the darkness of your sorrow. And then in response to his word, start to move in some new directions. I don't know what the Egypt might be in your life, but God wants you not to wallow in the sorrow of Bethlehem that has happened, that is there, that's a fact. Now hear God saying, it's time to move on. I have a new place for you, and I have a new purpose for you, and I have a promise for you. My name is Emmanuel, which means God with you. And I'll be with you in your journeys into some new territory some new relationships, some new encounters. And then I'll bring you back. I'll even bring you back to Nazareth. I'll bring you back in time to your roots where you'll feel again that ever-present refreshment of my spirit in you and through you and for you. God is with you. That's what it means. The invitation to the meeting for everybody. The place anybody can come. The person, the refreshment, 
Jesus Christ himself. The result, rejoicing, praising God, walking in a new way, experiencing ultimately a whole new meaning to life. Whatever the circumstances of your personal Christmas might be. Okay. Avery, I've tried to tell it again. You've heard it and heard it and heard it. Hear it again in your heart.